The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Last year, Gargantuan $2.3 trillion appropriations bill did a couple of very obvious things. It provided millions of Americans badly needed coronavirus relief aid, and it averted an impending government shutdown. It also dealt with UFOs. The stipulation mandates that the Director of National Intelligence work with the Secretary of Defense on a report detailing everything the government knows about unidentified flying objects, known in agency lingo as unidentified aerial phenomena or anomalous aerial vehicles. It must be made public, and when it is, it will be big. Former Intelligence Director John Radcliffe said in a recent interview, quote, Frankly, there are a lot more sightings than have been made public, end quote. The report must include detailed analysis of unidentified aerial phenomena, data, and intelligence gathered by the Office of Naval Intelligence, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, and the FBI. The provision reads, When the spending package was approved on December 27th, a 180-day countdown began, giving intelligence officials until June to deliver lawmakers their write-up. Quote, the U.S. needs to take a serious scientific look at this and potential national security implications. The American people deserve to be informed, end quote. The increasingly vocal crowd of space watchers is eagerly awaiting the forthcoming intelligence agency report. Some of them say that studying UFOs is essential to the country's security. In a July interview, Florida U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, vice chair of the Intelligence Committee, said, quote, the prospect that something otherworldly is behind the flying objects does not concern him as much as the idea that a U.S. adversary could be making secret technological advances. Quote, the bottom line is, if there are things flying over your military bases and you don't know what they are because they aren't yours and they're exhibiting potentially technologies that you don't have at your own disposal, that to me is a national security risk and one that we should be looking into, end quote. Radcliffe also described the sightings this way, quote, we are talking about objects that have been seen by Navy or Air Force pilots or have been picked up by satellite imagery that frankly engage in actions that are difficult to explain, movements that are hard to replicate, that we don't have the technology for or are traveling at speeds that exceed the sound barrier without a sonic boom. There's actually quite a few of those, and I think that information is being gathered and will be put out in a way the American people can see." End quote. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, CBD pure hemp oil, Divinia water, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. 
and click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Stephen Baffett is the executive director of Paradigm Research Group, founded in 1996 to end a government-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He has given over 1,200 radio and television interviews, and PRG's advocacy work has been extensively covered by national and international media, including being featured on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. In 2013, PRG organized a citizen hearing on disclosure at the National Press Club in Washington. In November of 2014, PRG launched a two-year political initiative out of Washington, D.C. that injected the ET issue into the 2016 presidential campaign. PRG recently launched a new extra-political podcast out of Washington, D.C., The Disclosure Wire, based in the National Press Building, two blocks from the White House. Bassett has appeared in many documentary films, and his lectures and interviews are well represented on YouTube. His main website is paradigmresearchgroup.org, and I'm privileged to welcome back Stephen Bassett. Hello, Stephen. Welcome back. How are you? I'm back, baby. It's good to be with you, Mel. Steve, where are you now? Where are you? Are you in D.C.? Around that area? I am in my office in in deep Washington, D.C., two blocks from the White House. Great. And by the way— Just in case they need me. Yeah. (laughs) Just in case. You're just a stone throw away from the White House. Is that right? A nine iron. Okay. Okay. That's not that too far. That's not that far. But I always have to say this at the beginning of every show that I do with you, Steve. You were my very first real interview. The first one was kind of a, a uh, an accident with uh, the late Milton Torres. But you came to me after that happened, and uh, I pretended that I had a a radio show, and the rest is history. So I'm always very grateful that you accepted my very first invitation. Okay. Well, since, since you haven't had me on for eight years, that that's that, but that's very nice. I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. So let's not wait eight years for the next one. Excellent. By the way, <laughs> you are currently exercising in a very good setup that you just told me. You have one of those elevated uh, desks. You know, after 12 months of COVID, I think everybody has put a pound or two. I'm one of them. And, uh, you know, we all have to get out or if not, at least have some, bring the gym to the uh, to the office. That's what you're doing right now. Uh, perfectly economical uh, standing desk. So adjustable up and down. 89 bucks on Amazon. And then I got a fantastic deal at Costway on a, a $380 on a uh, treadmill. Put the two together. Now, I should have done this six, seven months ago, okay, but I'm not that kind of guy. I, I have to stumble on stuff. Uh, and so now I can put in two, three miles a day, as much as I want. But even if I'm not on the treadmill, I'm standing up. And I'm trying to do as much stand-up as possible. Sitting in a desk, hunching over a laptop is killing me. So now, posture, straight up, less less neck problems. It's the way to go. And with a treadmill, it's doubly cool. So I'm coming out of this pandemic Rested, tan, ready. Well, Steve, after eight years, I want you to give me an update. What has happened? You also took kind of a hiatus for a while, and you're kind of a getting back in. What's been going on in the disclosure movement? 
<laughs> no, very, there's a lot of people that would not dare ask me that question because, well, I mean, put it this way. If uh, oh, there's a couple of talk shows that know me well enough, if they asked me that question, they could just leave the leave the studio, go out and have dinner. And when they got back, I'd still be closing up, right? Uh Look, in 2013, I did the citizen hearing on disclosure. That's the last time that we interacted. Uh, it, it accomplished its goal. And then in 2014, well, late 2014, November, December, I came to Washington, delivered the, the citizen hearing record to all of the members of Congress and started a media campaign targeting Hillary Clinton in the, in the election. Uh, I knew all about her connection to the ET issue and other people in her, in her coitier. And uh, I was able to break through. My publicist, very, very connected woman, and we started getting the articles out. They started getting calls. They were in an impossible position. And then all you know, they started doing things. Uh, the, the famous regret tweet on February 13th, 2015. She turned up on Kimmel. Her husband turned up on Kimmel. Uh, Barack turned up on Kimmel. <laughs> she gave some other interviews. She played it safe, though. She didn't get carried away. And the media covered it. 400 some articles, all on my website. Uh, so there was a huge amount of awareness and interest, certainly in the media, about the fact that she really had a connection and, and, and was willing to speak publicly about the ET issue. No other presidential candidate's ever done that in that degree. And that was the plan. That was the plan all along. So once she wins the White House, uh, my prediction that she intended to be the disclosure president would have been foremost in a lot of people's minds. And then with all the media coverage already and, the, and more to come because, you know, that's a subject they're not going to steer away from once she's the president, even while the president-elect. Essentially, we were locked – I'm trying to lock down disclosure early in her term, maybe six months into her term. Hearings and then disclosure, it's done. She's a disclosure president. That's what she wanted. She just wasn't willing to – she was trying to finesse it. It was a mistake. I told Podesta in an email. He did not respond. That that was the biggest mistake of her political life in any event. She lost the election, and pretty much my entire game plan uh, went out the window. And I was in a—I was nowhere. It was not a good time because uh, a huge amount of work had gone into those projects, and they essentially—it uh, was like they were—they were—they were worth about as much as Colombian currency on a, on a bad day. So. I, I checked out. I, I, I went to the UK. I, I have a place to stay there, and I stayed there for eight months. Went to Moscow, gave an interview that was kind of cool, and redid my website, which I'd been putting off for approximately 12 years. So that's, you see, I'm, I get around to things eventually, right? Uh, and while I was there, the To the Stars Academy launched, meaning suddenly the game was on again. They, the game was back on. And I was out of the stadium. <laughs> so I watched it from afar. I came back. And, 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 but I knew instantly how important it was. So even in, while I was in the UK, I immediately started supporting this project, following it very closely. And that's what I've been doing uh, since I got back uh, in early 2018. Then I had some health problems. You know, the odd organ has to go, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I came back to Washington in uh, September of 2019 because of certain developments and was prepared to go big time. I mean, get really back in the game at that point. And I, I started the process, got set up, got an office in D.C. near the White House just in case they need me. And uh, 
the pandemic came along. And I, I, I didn't order a pandemic, but apparently that's what they're serving. So that kind of set me back. Uh, and I've been de- like everybody else. But I've, I've been in a position where I'm, I'm very strongly isolated and was able to almost eliminate the risk of getting it. Uh, but I was very careful. I'm 74, so it's not like, ah, I'll roll the dice. No. So uh, the last year has been kind of that, trying to see what I could do uh, within the pandemic. And I have done some things. Uh, I've also brooded a lot. Uh, and But watching everything closely, which brings me to an important point. Since this show was, what, three, four hours? Here's the deal. Everything I'm talking about, for anybody that's like, what is he, what's he saying? What's going on? I have a, t- a hint, a tip. You want to be the most one of the most noticeable people in the world about some of the most important developments in history? Here's what you can do. You go to my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org. The top menu, you hit resources. You scroll down to print media archive. That takes you to an intro page. Then you hit PRG Media, print media. You get that page comes up. Go to uh, 2018. I'm sorry. Go to 2017. Scroll down to October 10, and you will see earmarked in red the first article published about the To the Stars Academy. This was published the day before it was launched. And then just start working chronological toward the present and read every red earmarked red marked article because all of those are related to the to the stars academy and 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 things that subsequently developed due to them connected indirectly but all pretty much in the same basket and read forward until the present time it's 700 articles it's about the equivalent of a 400 page book and when you finish that then you go to issues up in the menu drop down to to the stars academy Go to media, to the Stars Academy Media, TTSA Media, and what comes up there is 160 video clips related to the TTSA, interviews with them, news coverage of them, and so forth. There are more than that, and I I need to load a bunch more on, but there's 160 there. Watch as many as you can. It wouldn't take forever. If you do both of those things, you will know more than 99%, maybe 99.5%, of the people in the world about what's going down right now, because without that, you're just getting tiny pieces of a very rich picture that's being painted. So that's my tip on that. So that's my answer to your question, what I've been doing. And I'm completely now immersed in uh, these current developments. And the last thing I'll say is this, what I've been saying in my pre- 62 other interviews I've given since January 1, I'm convinced for some very good reasons we are in the last weeks and months of the truth embargo and that soon we're going to have congressional hearings. That's the next step. And those congressional hearings will lead to the confirmation of ET presence by the president. president. The timing of all this has been tricky because of unusual events happening. The pandemic, for one, which might have been further along right now, but it's not. And there may be another resurgence. That's an issue. Big problem. And then the political developments, which are still a crazy mess, uh, that things that have happened that have jammed the administration up so that 
it's pushed the prospects of this forward several months. So now I'm thinking soonest May, could be June, could be July, but it's going to be sooner than later. And that's a big deal. But I can make a very powerful case while that projection is substantive. Well, let me ask you this. Let's dissect a lot of too many things to unpack with what you just said. Look, first of all, in the intro, you didn't hear it because I already pre-recorded it. I discussed the 180-day period from December 27th, 2020 to, I believe, let me just put it here, that would be June 20, the 25th of 2021, which is allegedly when this report will come out to Congress. How much truth do you think will come out this time? Okay. Now, that's a very significant development. Uh, one of the many that I was referring to that has been covered. Uh, right now, I'm going to a particular – I need to go to 2019. Just take a second. And this will allow me to give your listeners a, a perspective. In 2019, this is one of a number of things that happened that got my attention. But this is pretty straightforward. In 2019, in July, the To The Stars Academy was announced, by the way, in October 2017. So this is about 18 months after the TTSA was launched. Uh, in July, one of the members of the To The Stars Academy, uh, Christopher Mellon, an experienced political player um, who has worked for the Defense Department. He's worked for eight, uh, entities on the Hill, and he's the former Associate Secretary of Defense, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, which sounds like might be a low-level person. And in fact, that's a pretty high-level job. He wrote a op-ed in the Washington Post, and I am looking for that right now. And while I'm looking, essentially – what Mellon did was to call out the Congress. He'd written one previously that called out the DOD. This, this is a little later. He's calling out the Congress for why it isn't addressing this issue, which any seasoned person would know immediately is he's calling on the Congress to hold hearings. All right. Okay. I noted that with great interest. Now, not long after that, word came to me and some others that he was up on the hill, Capitol Hill, and he was meeting with members of congressional committees, almost certainly focused on certain committees, not just any member of Congress. And he was taking witnesses with him. Now, the witnesses were military witnesses. And I think initially it was the witnesses that many people are familiar with, namely the uh, couple pilots and maybe some of the technical people from the Nimitz aircraft carrier group involved in the 2004 incident that, of course, was made worldwide famous by uh, the new uh, Washington Post in those De uh, December 2016 articles. So. That caught my attention. So we waited a little bit. And then a couple of the members happened to mention that they'd had these briefings, but they weren't interested in discussing content, which confirmed that these, these 
these meetings, briefings, whatever, were off record. No press, no press release uh, going to be put out, and they're not going to talk about it, which happens all the time. Nothing unusual about that. So what do I know at that point? I know that Melton is speaking with members of Congress off the record, and he's exposing them to some of the key military witnesses. Well, one of the people that came forward to indicate that, yes, he'd been briefed in that fashion was the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the key committee of the six committees in Congress that really need to address the ET issue. That's number one, that he'd been briefed. That's all he said. We noted that. And so I pretty much figured out that Mellon was up on the Hill holding meetings, and, and who knows how many. There was no reason to think it wasn't 10, 15, 20, 25, because he was getting the meetings, meaning these people thought, this is something I need to hear. And if, if somebody on the Hill is getting a meeting on something important that they need to hear, any other member hears about it, they want a briefing too. In other words, the TTSA and its actions had lowered the bar to the point where people in uh, Congress are willing to talk to at least these people, uh, Christopher Mellon, who is a career person. And so the floodgates or at least the gates to the city are kind of open. Okay. This got my attention big time, but I'm stuck out in California and not able to really move much. Uh, it was going to take a lot to, to get back to D.C., but uh, I'm watching closely. And then it was confirmed that the president of the United States had been briefed. Well, that got my attention for sure. Essentially, the president got a, a briefing, I think, similar to what the members of Congress got, which is some pilots talking about the Nimitz event. And that's all well and good. He kind of confirmed that in a, a brief interview he had. I think it was with Kudlow, might have been his son, but. Sort of the nature of the question is response indicated that, uh, yeah, he, he had gotten a briefing. Okay. Now that meant things were now at a, another level. So that is when I did whatever I could to get back from California to Washington, D.C. Right. So I did. COVID comes in the door. So things kind of slow down, but. The upshot is, is that there's every reason to believe that Mellon has had a significant number of meetings with key members of Congress and that many, if not all of them, have also gotten some information from some of the pilot witnesses, which does some significant testimony. OK, good. Now, there's something else that I was fully aware of and it has to do with another key member of the TTSA, formerly member of the TTSA, and that is Louis Elizondo, who was a career intelligence officer with the Department of Defense. Quite a career, actually. So what it was clear that was happening is that Louis Elizondo was interviewing the witnesses, how many we don't know, but a lot, and he, he was bringing many of them onto the program, unidentified, inside America's UFO investigation, uh, as part of that 14-episode series, two, two seasons, 14 episodes, uh, which was cool. And we were seeing them, and they were being frank. Some of them were in silhouette. That was significant. Okay, That's just part of, again, one of the many, many developments, which you can read about in those articles that I, I directed people to. And then I learned that – and this doesn't surprise me at all – that the TTSA, particularly Mellon, getting contacts coming in, from scores and scores 
of witnesses. And by that, I mean military witnesses. Why? Because they clearly saw that experienced flyers, career people, were coming forward, spilling the beans on what they've seen with no consequences. In other words, something had changed. It was a new era. And they'd been sitting on their stories for a long time, and they thought to talk to at least Lou about it. And so the only conclusion was that over the last year and a half, uh, maybe even going back further, frankly, but over that last year and a half at minimum, Christopher Mellon's been meeting on the Hill, and Louis Elizondo has been accumulating and vetting witnesses, military witnesses. There is only one conclusion if you are me, I mean, I've been in and around Washington for a very long time. This is not rocket science. There is only one conclusion that you take from that, period. They are preparing for hearings on Capitol Hill, specifically for military witnesses, not one hearing, multiple hearings, to address the ET, UEP, or certainly the UAP issue, absolutely from a national security standpoint, without getting into biases there. That the Hill is now ready to have those hearings, the witnesses are ready to testify under oath at those hearings, and that if those hearings take place, and they will be public, and they will be seen by hundreds of millions of people, I do not think the truth embargo will last more than about two to three weeks. So we could be that close to finally ending the truth embargo and entering the post-disclosure world. So now you got a little more of the picture of what's going down. How many hundreds, if not thousands, of military service members have stories they they could not share? I mean, you remember the story of Milton Torres. I remember it when he said that after he landed his plane, after being ordered to scramble his jet with his wingmen to shoot down a UFO the size of an aircraft carrier over East Anglia in, in England. And when he came down, of course, he had to go through the 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 whole sworn to secrecy. If you ever talk, you're going to lose your wings. Uh, your family might be in peril here. Yeah. How many of these people are out there now thinking, why are these allowed to talk and not us 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago? Okay. And I'm going to answer that question. Then I'm going to actually be able to read a little bit of Mellon's op-ed in the Washington Post. Okay. Um, if you're counting retired and active, uh, going back the whole 70 years, which means a lot of these people are, are, are past now, it's thousands, and thousands for sure. It, you could almost say tens of thousands uh, and make a case for it. And this, and this includes, when you say stories to tell, this includes everybody in the military that has been directly assigned to address the issue in some program, whether it be a USAP, a SAP, or a just classified program uh, in one form or fashion, thus obviously tipping them off that there's something big going on, uh, all of those, and then a significant number of people that are not involved in any direct programs, but they've had an event. They've seen something, which they either knew well enough not to say anything about or were told not to say anything about. So there's all of those. And you could add to that a large group of people who have simply been tipped off. And that, that goes on all the time. And what do I mean by that? Somebody is involved in a program that makes it certain to them there's an ET 
reality here. And they're hanging out with one of their good, good friends, longtime friends. And they don't have to necessarily break a, uh, an NDA or invite their security oaths. They're not going to hand them over any documents, but it just, they might very well just say, look, Johnny, I know you hear this and you hear that. I can't really say anything, but I can tell you this. I can't say anything specific. It's real. That's it. And that moment, that person just got tipped. It's real. What are they going to do about it? Nothing. So the numbers of people in government, at least to that point, is in the tens of thousands. And that's interesting, isn't it? You've got all of these people working around the government with all of these uh, level of awareness, direct experience, involvement programs in something that the government claims doesn't exist. That's bizarre. By and large, if you're running a complex uh, democratic republic with big nuclear weapons, bizarre is not a word you want to associate with government policy, which is why I do what I do. Now, let me just drop on down here. So this is uh, the article, this op-ed rather, I'm sorry, he, he, his op-ed in the Washington Post was about the DOD needs to engage this, which of course is starting to happen now. In other words, Mellon, is Mellon uh, driving this? Meaning, oh man, Mellon wrote an op-ed, we've got to get on, or he, is he simply shadowing it? Meaning, hey, that's coming, let me just give a little advance thing without embarrassing anybody. Uh, so, But this was in the Hill newspaper, which is a very important newspaper in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's entitled, well, should be right here. Why, why don't I see the title? Oh, here it is. Friend, foe, or unknown force flying overhead. Congress should find out. Now, you know how Congress finds things out? By holding hearings and having people of on the record come in under oath and so forth who are well positioned and testify. They particularly do that. When they want the public to also get that information at the same time so that not only do they look good and they're on camera, but the public is not feeling like they're being left out and developing anxiety. Not that there isn't enough of that already. So just the headline alone uh, is all I needed to see. But so here's a, here's just a few words. What, what these UAPs, and that is the current phrase for the phenomena. UFO is history. It's awful. It's ridiculous. It's propaganda. Get rid of it. Forget it. Bury it. I don't care what you got to do. Do your best. What these UAPs were and who was flying them, whether friends, foes, or unknown forces, remain a mystery. Yet careful examination of the data inevitably leads to one possible disturbing conclusion. A potential adversary, potential is an important word, of the United States has mastered technologies we do not yet understand to achieve the capabilities we cannot yet match. It is long past time for Congress to discover the answers to those questions and to share at least some of its conclusions with the public. And this was written on May 19, 2019. It's two years old. Now, the pandemic, of course, went on for another eight months, still going on. If it wasn't for the pandemic, we could already be there practically. If not, well, that's all right. Everything slowed down. So what we now know is that the Congress is willing to do that. The question is the timing. And right now the timing is dependent upon whether any really problematic variants of the COVID-19 virus spread in the U.S. relate in the context of the evolving 
um, vaccination uh, level. In other words, we're racing with the devil right now. Uh, and we're not racing well. The United States has not handled this crisis well. If the United States had handled the crisis posed to it by the war in Europe against Britain and the attack of the Japanese, we would be speaking either Japanese or German today. And that is an understatement. We screwed up. We were handled a logical thinking test, failed it. Have to do over a grade. Tuition cost, $7 trillion. So, if that vaccine, uh, uh, the, the vaccination levels get up fast enough, it may prevent the new variants from doing much damage. But unfortunately, too many parts of the country simply saying, no, we're, we're going we're to jump off the cliff. We're going to jump out of the plane without a parachute because we can and because it's our right, God-given right, to do whatever the hell we want. And yeah, that could go, go back. So those are the two key factors. And then the political situation is awful, as always. There are some rays of light. There's still potential for some vicious political stuff going on the Hill. And so when the Hill is in vicious mode, when members are carrying guns into the Capitol legally and even trying to get them on the floor of the Capitol and threatening the nuclear options and everything else, not ideal for a extremely important, complex set of hearings – uh, even though the subject is totally bipartisan and everybody can just drop their mask and act like human beings and, and, and be stars on TV because there's no need to go political of discussing the national security issues of unidentified aerial phenomena, still just getting there when people essentially are plotting right, to, uh, how would you say, find ways to get them removed from the Congress – not going to happen. So the, these are the three things that are happening. And I was overly optimistic. I'm now more, uh, I think, uh, reasonable about it. Again, May, absolute soonest, June, July, uh, hopefully the summer. We don't want to put it off. And I can talk about that later, why we don't want to put it off. Let me interject for a but, second since you brought up the vaccine. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't expecting to discuss this here, but I have to play devil's advocate for the other side as well. You know, there's the people who are skeptical are saying, well, I've had COVID. Most people that I've talked to have had COVID already. 99 point some plus percent has a survival. That's the survival rate. The vaccine is under, and I don't even know why they call it a vaccine, which is a, it's gene therapy. It's RNA, mRNA, but the vaccine is under emergency authorization, not approval. It's not being approved by the FDA, and there's a lot of confusion out there. And we won't know it until 2023 when the studies are done. So anybody who continues, if you want a vaccine, go ahead. I don't want to criticize anybody, whether you take it or you don't. But there's some good, sensible explanations from both sides. But the fact that we won't know it until 2023, why would anybody – Become a lab rat if we don't know what what's really inside of that. And it's, it's never been explored before, experimented upon. Everyone is an experiment. When somebody says, oh, I've done my research. Oh, really? You have done your research? It's an experiment. We don't know yet. So I have to just make light to the people who are saying, hey, I want to wait. Just like when you have windows years ago in the 90s and uh, you wait for the next windows and everybody goes out there and then their computer crashes. And those who waited say, I'm going to wait until there's a few upgrades before I jump in. Do you see how some people are skeptical? Of course. 
I'm quite familiar with the issue. I've been trapped in an office. Well, I've been trapped basically for 14 months. I got no no wife. I got no kids, no girlfriend, no pets. All I've got is a 60-inch screen and some very high-speed internet, 200 MPBS. So have I read several hundred articles on the virology of this? Yeah. Have I been following the politicalization of it? Yeah. Have I read countless comments from people about their views? Yes. So I'm, I'm fully aware. And all I can say is this. I don't debate the, uh, the, the options that people could take or not take. I don't debate the disputes over the facts, which is nothing unusual about dispute over the facts. It just seems that facts are getting disputed more than when I was a kid. But in any event, I don't do that. Uh, I get people post pretty strong stuff on my, my social media. I do not, do not respond. Uh, really, I just don't respond. Because, I'll, well, maybe this way. I, I give out information. I say what I think. And I recently got vaccinated, so I put out a post about how that went. I got a, my second Moderna. And uh, I'm damn glad to have it. But And that's it. All right. This is one of those situations where people have to make their own decisions. We are not an authoritarian state, and there are plenty of but there are plenty of things in our culture that are required by law. But even then you have freedom, some freedoms of action. For instance, you are required by law to have a car a car insurance. If you don't like paying car insurance, you're not required to have a car. So you don't have a car, you don't pay it. And I could give countless examples of that. And in this case, if you look at how this has gone, I can say, based upon my understanding of other governments and the history of other authoritarian states and so forth, that the amount of authoritarian overlay by the U.S. government and the states has been kind of modest. I mean, clearly. But, but so far, so far, so, so far, yeah, so but, far. But that's what matters so far. OK, so people are basically making their own decision. And so and that's probably the way it should be. But, you know, there are things where that's not the case. You can make your own case to, to scream fire in a theater. You have the right. You can do it. You will pay a cut. Con- Consequence for it because we have we address that issue within our laws. So there are a lot of things you can do, but not necessarily without consequences. Okay, fine. So that's where it is, and the outcome. In the end, history will judge it this way: X number of people die, whether it's a half million, million, million and a half, whether worldwide it's four, five, eight, ten, twelve, who knows? X number of people will die, and history will will say this: it could have been worse, or it could have been better. And history might say, and probably will say, that the outcome ultimately was the result of the quality of the information available to the most number of people. If the quality of the information is good, so that people are actually making their own decisions based upon legitimate information, and then weighing the risk, that uh, portends best op- a- outcomes. If the quality is bad, if it's polluted, if it's misinformation, uh, if it's politicized, then obviously the, uh, the decisions will be flawed. So 
The only thing I'll say on top of that is this. There is ample evidence that the quality of information is flawed. There is ample evidence that there is absolutely, completely untrue information that is being interjected for political reasons without getting into the specifics. So we know the quality of information is bad. But the pandemic is not the only thing that showed up in our world uh, in the last uh, decade or so. The other thing that showed up, some would say it was a pandemic, was the Internet, which came with a personal computer and an option to, to join social media, which virtually everybody took, thus changing the world forever and creating a space that was completely beyond my comprehension when I was a kid or even a middle-aged man. And so the world is trying to deal with the Internet and all that it can do, and it's trying to deal with the pandemic. And the one thing we have definitely learned, and I don't think this is controversial, is the ability of the Internet to share vast amounts of information with vast numbers of people and with people able to enter in no matter who they are and to, spread, to give out information from anonymous platforms has created an information stream that is highly polluted. And so what the, the problem we face today is that whereas you go – you can pick certain times in American history – well, certainly the modern era where the water in our – in our springs or in our rivers was pretty clean and you could drink it and you could be confident. You didn't have to check it. You didn't have to send it off for analysis and you'd be okay. Now we're at a place where the water's polluted and you may not even know which pollutants. And so people that are just drinking from that stream without checking are going to pay a consequence. This is a huge problem, which involves more than just some viruses. Uh, and I can also say with confidence that the problem with the Internet, which we're dealing with, it's it's not it's not we're not being demonized. It's not a curse. It's just new technology. We're trying to figure it out is going to cause problems in every aspect of our life, every aspect of our life. There's going to be a lot of damage and a lot of cost. All technology has done that. We invented atomic technology. Cool. We can have power. And we also killed a bunch of citizens with bombs. So. I try to take that view. It's, it's an overview. And when you think of it that way, getting into an argument over whether someone should or should not have gotten the vaccine, getting mad at somebody because they don't accept a particular point of view seems small compared to the bigger issues. Huge numbers of people die every day in the world. There will be new ways for them to die. This is one that's turned up. So we're not going to get away with do away with death. The one thing we can do is work to find ways to increase the access of quality information, how that is defined, to as many people as possible and give people as much opportunity to make their own decision. But understand, there are limits to that freedom, and that's happened in our culture. It's nothing new about it. There are so many things that we don't have the freedom to do that we've adapted to. And but this one is a tough one, and it's and it's uh, it's uh, putting a lot of pressure on us, and so people are upset. I get that. But I I was reading the other day. I just happened to go on Wikipedia <laughs> when you want to kill time, Wikipedia. And I I decided to read about the siege of of um, Leningrad. It was the worst siege in hi history, all of human history. Most most deaths. It went on for fourteen months, fifteen months. It was unbelievable. People were trapped. 
14, 14, 1.4 million got out, but then the corridor was closed and there was something another 1.8 million, something like that, still in the city. And they couldn't leave. And the Germans were around them. And so eventually the food ran out, the water ran out. They were eating rats. They were eating insects. There was cannibalism, unbelievable death. It was hell on earth. But eventually the siege was lifted. The total number of dead estimated around 1.4 million. There's a half a million people just in one cemetery alone in Leningrad. It was sobering. It's the nature of human beings. If things, whatever the situation is, we adapt to it. If it's good, we expect it. We expect it to be the norm. We don't like to remember bad times. You don't even remember the bad times of other people. But as I listened to what the people of Stalingrad went through in order to survive, hell beyond anything I think any American can imagine right now, except maybe some, some living former uh, prisoners of war who had the worst, worst treatment, it gives me some perspective on what Americans are facing now and helps certainly to me to mitigate, uh, I say mitigate, to, to try to appreciate that we have it pretty good and perhaps we need to be more uh, accepting of occasional intrusions and problems uh, because uh, things can get a lot worse, and I think in many cases the inability to adapt to a circumstance for whatever the reason can actually create more problems. All right. Uh, anyway, Caesar Stalingrad. I'm Caesar Leningrad. I'm sure you expected to be talking about that, Mel, tonight. <laughs> knew, I'm sure you did. Not at all, but that's You're okay. Very- I, I like to. <laughs> Wherever Veritas takes us, that's fine. But you know what? Risks have choices. You take choices every single day. And and just to address this, yeah. and then we'll go back to this closure, but let me just address this for a moment. Settled science said asbestos was not harmful. Settled science said cigarette smoking was healthy. Settled science said that DDT spraying on children was healthy. And settled science said the polio vaccine was healthy, and it gave millions cancer in the 50s and 60s. And it was kept quiet for years, Steve. And in 1976, we had the swine flu, the first one, and it gave thousands of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the vaccine that is, to the point the government in bed with Big Pharma and the incestual and revolving door of the FDA, they agreed to shield Big Pharma of all liability in case of vaccine, injury, or death. One last thing, and I'll get your reaction on this. Someone has a restaurant they have to make sure that they meet all the state and county's, you know, health standards. And if someone gets food poisoning, they can go after the restaurant. That alone is motivation for a restaurant operator to operate under the highest standards. I'm all about informed consent. Why does a restaurant have to make sure their food does not harm people? But Big Pharma does not even have to go through safety studies that, granted, cost millions. But if they're exempt... <laughs> In order to sell their product now, they don't have to go through it. You see where I'm coming from. Why is one industry exempted while the others are not? There are a half dozen topics in your presentation there that I could debate. But all of them ultimately refer to are pretty much stemming from the COVID vaccine decision. And so because I don't debate people on the COVID vaccine issue, I'm not going to debate on the other issues as well. Okay. You've stated your positions. I, I could state positions in all of those areas, but 
it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not going to change anything, and and uh, not my not my area. But you know what the but most I, important thing is, Steve. I don't mean to interject. The most important sure. thing is, you and I have been friends since two thousand eight, and whether we disagree about this or that. I love it that we disagree because that's how I learn. That's how I evolve. You're going to say things that are going to compel me to change my mind once in a while. And that's it. At the end of the day, we shake hands, we have a beer, and we continue. But I've seen this division within our field, Steve. I've been unfriended by plenty of people that I really consider friends. Just because you have a disagreement about something? Uh, Well, look, yeah, look – by and large, if you get a disagreement with one of your FB friends over the Fed, you're probably not going to be unfriended. But COVID is life and death. It's extremely personal. And it's it's virtually Oh, I'm not talking uh, about COVID, by the way. I'm not talking I about COVID know, at all. But I'm saying I'm saying that well, okay. I mean, look, there there are things one can get unfriended on. Usually it, uh, it 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 involves stuff very personal to other people. And uh the more personal it is, the more the possibility Ability for a friend or a block based upon what went once on post. The, 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 there's no question that the internet has become far more aggressive and intense. And that was before the epi- epidemic arrived. Uh, the political circumstances alone was setting social media on fire. And then the pandemic came in on top of that. And, and again, I, I, I don't, I don't jump to the conclusion that the American people are losing their mind or, uh, just, I don't know, getting nastier for when well, they are getting nastier. But I mean, I'm not so much blaming them. I, I think that, uh, as I say, the people in Leningrad had to deal with that. And it was bad. It lasted two years. We're dealing with our own things, but in the modern context. Right. And one of the things we're dealing with is the, the reality of the Internet and social media. There is a documentary out there called social it's something it's it's a good documentary it's it's very powerful. oh yeah yeah about the facebook yeah yeah um uh, and uh it's it's again it's uh, people, humans adapt to everything right so something will happen and it's really intense all kinds of issues and then two and a half years later it's like, ah, i'm adapted we do this that's why we that's why there's seven billion of us it's one of our skills other animals can't even approach our adaptability and so the internet and social media showed up. We started adapting to it, engaging it. When the smartphone showed up, we engaged those, and we went with it. And they became ubiquitous overnight, and that's the problem. They didn't come with a user manual. It was like, here, here's a billion smartphones. Use them. See how it goes for you. So we did. And the social media. And it created all kinds of problems because, again, it is so quick we didn't have a chance to – decide what to do and how to do and how to integrate it and so forth. We said, run with it. We did. And and now we're dealing with the problems that come from that. That's There's nothing surprising about that. <laughs> Every time there's serious change, when the, when, the, when the motorized engine came in and replaced the, the horse and buggies, people had new problems, right? All kinds of new problems. And it, and it changed society, but it was slow. Eventually, it changed virtually all of America and cities and everything else, but slowly. Well, fast compared to the 1800s, but slowly. The Internet did in 10 years and since what other paradigm shifts might have taken a year, uh, a century or a century and a half. And so we are doing our best. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to be understanding 
with people. Uh, and I'm trying to do what I can do to not have it harm my ability to, uh, to do what I need to do. And it's, it can be small things. Early on, I figured out something really important that a lot of people didn't figure out. And if you, know, you, you, have, you have read their outcomes many times over the last 20 years. And that was, it seems uh, not to be a problem, but I knew it was. Do not put anything on the internet through any medium that you are not prepared to see on a billboard in New York Times. Period. Friend, foe, whatever. Your brother, your sister, a photo, anything. Do not put on the internet unless you are prepared to see it uh, on the front page of the New York Times. And tons of people didn't figure that out. And their lives were made much, much worse. So that was one. And then another thing, I said, look, do not argue on the internet. You just don't do it. Uh, argument is nice. In the right context, it's bracing over dinner with a friend and so forth. But arguing with strangers, worse, strangers under anonymous handles about anything. To what end? To what purpose? And then, of course, because of the anonymity and the distance, people got aggressive. I remember the flame wars of the late 1990s where the insults were flying so fast. People were calling everybody anything, right? They were calling things – they were calling people things that if you did it on the freeway in L.A., you would not make it home for dinner. Yeah, right. And so I did that, all right? And I'm trying to adapt in other ways. Uh, so what can I say, Mel? Uh, I think what's happening is that not enough people are taking into account the overall historical circumstances as they try to deal with whatever – caca is being thrown their way, whether it's somebody telling them off on Facebook or being accused uh, on, on, on uh, or trolled on Twitter or having somebody get in their face about the fact that if, if they don't get a vaccine, they're killing you know, their mother-in-law, whatever. They're not able to take that larger historical context because ultimately all of this heat and argument and opprobrium is probably not doing a single bit of good, ultimately. It just isn't. It's not going to change the outcome much. It's just going to make people miserable. It's not going to help, regardless of who writes, who's right or who's wrong. That's the best I can offer out there, guys. Well, you, you, you and I and a lot of our listeners are probably the last generation that had two feet in two different paradigms. And back in my day, at one point, we didn't even have a telephone. We had a black and white TV with, uh, you know, the... The yeah. antenna, the rabbit antennas forever, black and white. And and then all of a sudden, decade, a few decades later, we get this internet and computers. This new generation does not understand what it was to leave the house without a, an extra limb we, cut a, we call a cell phone these days. And I think this has morphed into society, as you say, the anonymity. And by the way, I'm totally about preserving people's privacy, totally. But it really infuriates me when I see – I never argue on the internet. Just I don't waste my time trying to convince people. I just lead by example. If you like what I do, fine. If not, you have freedom of choice. But I see a lot of people using all these pseudonyms and, and uh, you know, these names and you no know, picture in society. Try to do that in the 70s and 80s. That's no, why possibly. there was more – people were more civilized. But now people are taking that in person. 
And you see, you go to a grocery store, you see people fighting out of the most stupid thing you could even, I mean, what is happening to people? They don't know the difference between being behind their computer or cell phone and doing it in person. And that's going to create a lot of chaos in the future on a civilized society. History is happening to people. And uh, we can go back in history and you can see where some changes did upset people and create uh, smaller versions of the kinds of upsets we're seeing. But in these more historical examples, they are not as powerful. There aren't as many people. And so not so intense. But we're getting the full treatment here. Um, And this is where disclosure becomes completely relevant. Uh, and I like that we've gone here. I mean, I, I, I don't generally get a chance to get into the deeper, how would you say, uh, intellectual realms on some of this stuff. You know how it is. Yeah. You know, there's basic level, and you go up another level, another level, and you, you get up on the PhD, the academic level, and half the time you don't even know what they're saying because they're using words you never heard of. Whatever. But I, I don't get up there very often. But let's 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 go there. The way I see the human race now. And what's cool is I can actually see the human race, right? People living in Rome could only see a portion of it. And there was a time when they could only see the people in the next cave. But but uh, you can see the whole human race now. I, I, I can go on Google Earth and, and I'll go to almost every point on the planet and find out who lives there, or at least that there's somebody living. This is, this is beyond comprehension, and everybody's taking it for granted now. I try not to take these things for granted. So in the 20th century – some of the macroscopic things that have happened is one, the population went from one and a half billion, rough numbers, 1900, to three billion right after World War II, to six billion as we approached the end of the century, 100 years. That's an increase of four, right? To 7.3 billion, 2021, 74. That's, again, in terms of numbers, it's staggering. Now, if we were cockroaches, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But we're humans. And so every new human is a lifetime of expense, education, um, housing, clothing, food, water, space, all that stuff. Uh, we, we, we have big footprints. So seven billion of us versus one and a half billion is a big deal. So we've only had 120 years to figure out how to handle the extra Six billion people. Well, that's a really big problem. And, and the answer to that is, well, a lot of them we can't handle, and they're all pretty much up the creek, but not happy about it, so they may do something. It's that. Then secondly, starting at the same time, 1900, the real scientific technological curve started turning up big time. I'm not talking about combustion engine. I'm talking about atomic physics, areas of biology. And so forth. And almost everything started turning up and it got steeper and steeper as you move forward in the 20th century. Eventually it started taking off and we were seeing technological advances that you couldn't keep track of. You, you wouldn't even know about them because they're happening so fast. By the time somebody writes it up and gets it to you, you've moved on. So we got a steep technological trend curve going straight up, not in one area, but across broad areas, AI, right? Weapons development. <laughs> Atomic energy, nuclear weapons, space, uh, genetics, and on and on. So information doubling every, I don't know what it is now, two weeks or something. So 
All right, you got that. You've got the population increase. All right. And this is there's no there's no law of the universe, no law of physics, no fundamental principles that says I mean, you know, a lot of people think this is intelligent design. It's a wonderful concept, and I love to think about it and talk about it. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But they go a little further. It's intelligent design, but it's all going to work out because the intelligence design wouldn't do what it does unless it was going to work out. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Whether it's design or not, the idea that it has to work out, no, not at all. There's too many examples of that. And so there is no fundamental principle that says that our particular species, Homo sapiens sapiens, can handle what happened in the 20th century. Meaning, hey, we'll, we'll deal with that. We'll fix that. We got that covered. And even worse, what's going to happen in the 21st century? There is no law. And there are cases being made in think tanks and military uh, services and agencies, intelligence agencies who have all these supercomputers and stuff. Their cases have been made going on for several decades. If you look for them, you can find them. They don't generally pass them around much because they don't want to depress everybody. We, they want us buying and selling and paying taxes. But that we're not going to handle it. We can't handle it. It's going down. <laughs> if I was living in Rome in its last maybe century, century and a half, things were slower then. And I just happened to be from the future, and I had a computer, and I could really check everything out and see what was going on and catalog it and whatever. I, I, I probably could have figured out, yeah, you guys are finished. <laughs> You're done. You don't know it, but I, I have this computer, and I'm from the future. So I'm, I'm, and it's not that I'm seeing back in the past. I'm saying just from analyzing what you have, because I have this technology to look at it all, you're done. You're toast. Okay, well, we have that tech now. And I can make a case we will not make it to the 21st century without being some chicken little stuff or one of these, you know, tr trying to start a cult. This is plenty of evidence for this from solid sources. Okay. So, wow. What then, Steve? Are we really screwed? Now, by screwed, I mean your kids are screwed. Your grandkids are definitely screwed. But if you're a middle-aged person or whatever, you're probably going to be okay. Get yourself frozen. Come back around the year 3000. Could be cool. But we're screwed. Okay, well, if I believe that, what then? <laughs> okay. And by, by the way, if I would even dare to tell that, why do I need to know that, Steve? Why are you on radio telling me that? I got enough problems. You're being a, well, I won't say it. Very good question. Valid. The reason I have said this, not quite as elaborately as now, is this. There is a way. There is a way out of this mess. And you say, well, what do you mean? Uh, and it's not really our doing. In other words, there's a way, but it's not because in our genius and our ability to assess all of this stuff and come up with really good solutions and, imp and, 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 uh, and uh, put them into play, we can't even fix a bridge right now <laughs> you know what i'm saying the list of things we can't do is so long in america right now i don't want to talk about these other countries there are countries out there that can't do anything and people are just dying in the streets or whatever i understand but i just talk about america the, the lead dog in the pack the one that should have it all if we cannot do it nobody can so that's not good but you see there is an outside factor
And that outside factor is not an accident. It is not just our good luck. It is intentional. And it is this. Now I'm in my wheelhouse, Mel. I'm rolling. We dropped the bombs on Japan after testing one. We didn't have to drop them on people. We could have dropped them in the bay. Whatever. But we dropped them on human beings, which, a, which was a firm statement about where humans were circa 1945. Namely, if we have to vaporize uh, or slowly kill through radiation poisoning huge numbers of women and children and civilian men, as long as some combatants, we, we can do that. That was a statement so profound that most people didn't even get the statement. It was just too much, right? But there were others paying attention that did get it. And I'm referring to extraterrestrials who have been around for a long time. Need I say I am an Ancient Aliens alumnus, and I love this show. It's the best ever done in the overall perspective. And if only 20% of it is right, it will go down in history as one of the greatest series of all time for sure at 20%. And I assure you there are things right in that, that, uh, in that series. But they've been around for a long time. That doesn't mean all the time. They can come and go as they please. And for most of the last 8,000 years, a lot of it was boring as hell. I don't know if they'd stick around, but they certainly are around in the modern time. In the 20th century, before Roswell, there was evidence they were around. I'm not saying they weren't around and completely dormant, you might say, possible, but certainly they weren't completely dormant. But then we dropped those bombs. And then just a year uh, and a half later, their activity skyrocketed, took off, spiked, craft everywhere, being seen here, there, everywhere, within the context of the time. No cell phones, no cameras, by and large, people don't carry cameras, and, you know, slow media, all that. But the reports are coming in. The total amount of activity we will never know, but I think it was quite profound. And then you have the two, possibly three crashes in New Mexico. The government gets the bodies in the craft. And knows at that point, without any doubt, that we have these non-human extraterrestrial visitors and some of their tech. 1947. I'm not saying the crash was deliberate, but that's what happened. And so for the last 74 years, we have been in a totally different place, whether we knew it or not. The government made a fateful decision to embargo it for national security reasons. No need to argue it. I get it. I know why. How long that embargo was going to last was going to depend on the geopolitical factors. Had they gone well, who knows? They might have lifted the embargo in the 1960s. But they didn't go well. They went really badly. The only good thing you could say about the years following Roswell is that we didn't drop bombs on cities and destroy hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children. Kill them all. Turn them into dust. We didn't do that. That's the good thing you can say. The bad thing is, is that we built the most deadly force in all of human history, eventually resulting in 86,000 nuclear weapons in the mid-1980s. In other words, this problem continued, and the only wars that were happening – well, there were wars, but they were proxy wars. The big players stayed out of it. No world war because that would be mutual assured destruction, but proxy wars. So we weren't nuking other people, but we were killing them on their own territory as we fought, uh, uh, fought proxy wars against our mortal enemy, which could be the Chinese or it could be the Soviets. Still pretty awful, okay? And so that's going on, but the ET phenomena grew and grew and grew. They weren't going away. Clearly, they were escalating. Around 1990, 
over in the UK, the only circles that were turning up were circles. Suddenly, they started getting a little interesting and more interesting and escalated to vast, complex, multi-acre agroglyphs right, that weren't made by Doug and Dave. And then they started tampering with our nuclear weapons circa around mid-60s, turning them off over and over again. And I could go on and on, Mel. You know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And so then the question is, if you're studying this, why? Why are these extraterrestrials here at all? Why are they taking these measures? Why are they so present now? What does it mean by turning off our nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera? What is the point? I figured it out for me, my, to my satisfaction. Not completely, but I'm pretty confident. The point is this. The extraterrestrials have been around a long time. They've, this is not their first rodeo. They kind of know where we where we were as the century turned, 1900. And they knew that they were probably going to have to get involved, not just trivially, but significantly, because we weren't going to make it past possibly the 20th century. But if we did, and God knows we spent a whole lot of money trying to make it, we would make it to the 21st century. Hell, we could be killed by our own garbage. I just read the other day that in a short amount of time, the total amount of plastics in our oceans will exceed the weight of the fish. So, intervening, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean? Why they, they, they might monitor and they may want to intervene, but ultimately they don't have to intervene. They have their own home. They have access to most, if not all, of the galaxy. Why even bother? There's only a couple of reasons. They have a certain reverence for life, as we do, particularly for advanced life, sentient life, because it takes a whole lot of years, many millions, even billions, for a biosphere to generate sentient life. It doesn't come easy. And sentient life is capable of extraordinary things. So it's we value sentient life. Obviously, they probably do too. Okay, well, that's that's fine. You guys are evolved, sentient beings capable of extraordinary things. It would be such a shame if you just pretty much obliterated yourself. Right? Okay, that would be one reason, but still not enough. If we want to obliterate ourselves, fine. They're not going to run us. They've never tried to, as far as I, well, except possibly in the deepest antiquity. Again, why not just go home? And here's the clincher. This is the clincher, because one of the things they would have known early on in the 20th century in terms of our technological advance is that in addition to developing atomic weapons, which was obvious we were going to do that, we were going to figure out the workaround to relativity. And as it happens, if you poke around enough, you will discover that there are significant scientific engagements of that problem with uh, promising potential outcomes. It's simply not some bizarre thing anymore. In fact, there's debates about who has got the best workaround to relativity. And once you finally get there, and we could eat, we would almost certainly be there before the end of this century, maybe even before 2050, once you get there, you can then build interstellar craft. You're talking about probably bending time and space and exceeding the speed of whatever. light. Yeah. Whatever. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know, but whatever. And, and and the reason I can say whatever is because we know they do it. Since they can do it, we can do it. So 
and they've already figured out. Soon we're going to do it. Okay, fine. All right. So what's your point, Steve? Well, let's uh, apply. Let's let's reverse the roles here. No, hold it and, right and there. Hold it right there, Jeremy. I mean, we have to break both seconds. We'll reach the. You the... gotta sell something. Okay. No, no, I don't need to sell anything. But we just need to break uh, in in, in uh, one hour intervals. But one thing I want to say before we take the break is that I believe still the first day I spoke with you that the reason why we haven't disclosed is because our leaders primordial reason for being there is domestic tranquility, number one. And number two, if our military has to admit that there are craft that are not ours, could be an adversary or somebody else, and the fact that we cannot even match their speed, their maneuvers, and all that, that makes people question the ability of our own military to defend us. That's that's something I want to discuss well, and with you. When I finish my spiel, when I finish my spiel, yes. bring those up. We'll address them. Absolutely. Steve, how can people learn more about your work? And now you have a podcast too, right? ParadigmResearchGroup.org. That's the site. Plenty there. I, I have initiated a podcast. There's just a single introduction up, but it's eventually going to take, take off. Uh, that's DisclosureWire.org. That's one way to get to it. Right. Uh, it's based on YouTube, but they're going to be multiple places. And then I encourage people to follow Paradigm Research Group on Twitter. I need followers, folks. And Facebook, Paradigm Research Group. Don't think me for saying that. And that's that's it. Do that, and we'll all be in touch. Stephen Bassett, one more hour. This is Mel Hostelrick. More of Disclosure when we come back. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS. CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.